I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in our series, An Alternative Society. What makes the sacred routine of church any different than a book club or affinity group, an online message board? How does community change us, and why does it matter? Uh, Mother Teresa once said that, and I quote, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. She knew a lot about this kind of thing, Mother Teresa. She said, the problem with our world is that we draw the circle of family too small. But... Mother Teresa was not an idealist. She also understood that the remedy was uh, often as difficult as the problem itself. She went on to say, it's easy to love the people far away. It's not always easy to love those close to us. We know, already we know that loneliness is bad news. Even the most happily introverted among us are designed for human connection. And even if we think we're doing great in isolation, we know from the scriptures, from experience, and from neuroscience and psychology, that without a network of communal connection, our mental and physical and spiritual health all suffer. This is not a uniquely Christian concept. But the world has plenty of connection to offer. There's all sorts of texting apps and group threads and social media. Message boards are still a thing. Apple is gearing up to release a set of uh, mixed reality goggles that will cost you a small fortune to live the futuristic lifestyle that children of the 80s were promised would be here by the year 2000 and only now is getting here. And, and not really. <laughs> but lest you feel disconnected inside your futuristic headset. And it sounds like I'm making fun of this thing, but if someone gave me one, I would take it. Um, lest you feel disconnected inside that thing, the goggles, I kid you not, use internal cameras to project a video of your eyeballs on the outward display so that you might, and I quote, remain connected to those around you. Look at her dead digital eyes floating on the surface of those glasses. Just a sight to behold. Again, if anyone wants to get me one, I'll take it. Uh, remain connected to those around you. Ah, yes, connection. We've heard of connection. It is, dare I say, a buzzword in the kind of uh, social media pseudo-psychology speak that is ever-present in our world, in our culture. But interconnectedness and a true sense of uh, community, of family, of belonging, they are not the same thing. A sociologist, Sherry Turkle, one of the leading experts on the effects of technology, had this to say in her book, Alone Together. She wrote, we are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our networked life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. When technology engineers intimacy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections. And then... Easy connection becomes redefined as intimacy. Put otherwise, cyber intimacies slide into cyber solitudes. Earlier, 
Jan read from Matthew 4 about the way that Jesus began what we often call his uh, public ministry, the stuff that you read about in all four biographies of Jesus' life. It all starts by him calling multiple disciples to come and follow him, not just Peter and Jesus, not just Peter and Andrew, but Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, and on the list goes. Now, of course, these were the early group that he summons out of the boats and everything. These are like Torah-observing Jewish boys. But interestingly, the spectrum gets wider the more people Jesus calls to himself. Turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And let's read about Jesus calling more disciples, beginning in verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Verse 10, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so already there's this transition from, oh, hey, stranger on the side of the road to intimacy. They're in homes together. They're sharing a meal. It's a big deal in the first century. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, religious leaders, they saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Matthew, many of you, I know this, uh, or I know that many of you know this from Sunday school, having traveled in church circles for any length of time, you probably realize that tax collectors is not a, a great thing in the context of the scriptures. It was, they were uh, people who were in league with Rome, who was the oppressor. Think of uh, Matthew as something like a Jewish informant for Nazi Germany. So his circle of friends consisted probably of more tax collectors or depraved sinners um, which is a first century term for non-observant Jews. These are the only people that will associate with this guy, and more of them are coming over when Jesus sits down to have dinner. So even at the beginning, there's this strange spectrum represented amongst Jesus' followers, Torah-observing young men, also you know, uh, the, the, someone who's in league with the oppressor themselves. And then it gets weirder. Turn over to chapter 10. Start reading in the very first verse. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. So this is his community, his in-group. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, you know that guy, he's called Peter. His brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee. His brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So if you back up, you're like, wait, Simon the Zealot, Zealots were an insurgent group who so loathed the oppressor that they used violence and guerrilla warfare to fight back against Rome, the, the Gentile oppressor. Zealots were also called dagger men based on their uh, tendency to hide daggers in their robes in order to sneak up behind Roman soldiers and slit their throats. So you've got Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for Rome, the oppressor, and now you've got uh, the zealot, the dagger man, who went around presumably either participating or in league with the same group of people who would sneak up behind Roman soldiers and slit their throats. The guy who worked for the oppressor to exploit his own people for money and the guy who killed the oppressor violently. So imagine, you know, like the pickup truck driving member of the NRA standing next to like 
the urban vegan cyclists and PETA activists, and then multiply that dichotomy by 10 or more. Or think of like the MAGA hat far right internet troll and the Molotov cocktail hurling Antifa rioters called into the same church community. And there were personality discrepancies as, as well, not just ideological discrepancies. Peter seems to have been, if you read all four biographies, of, and really throughout the rest of the New Testament, he seems to have been kind of the loud, brash, headstrong. Thomas was introspective. He was a cynic. He was the doubter. James and John earned the nicknames Sons of Thunder, while Judas became known as the betrayer. The point is that Jesus deliberately arranges his community by drawing from a radically diverse spectrum of varying belief and personality, stage of life, season of life, belief system. It's not just an affinity group. So it stands to reason that such a group would uh, navigate the occasional row. And we know that they did from the text. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. Let's read uh, one such story. Matthew chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. There's a lot going on in this passage, but for our purposes tonight, let's just kind of read the superficial narrative. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. So these are two of Jesus' apprentices, and now mom comes over. And she kneels down, and she asks a favor of Jesus. What is it that you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. So she believes that Jesus is the coming Messiah, which they believed would become uh, the king of Israel. And she's like, look, you're going to be the king. Remember, these are my boys. Remember them. And, you know, like the boys are like, Mom, you know. <laughs> Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. She doesn't. She doesn't understand Jesus' mission completely. At this point, nobody does. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And then Jesus said to them, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So that's Jesus for no. And then verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, so the, the other the people in the community, the other young men who followed Jesus, they were indignant with the two brothers. This is easy to assume why. Like any normal community, people are mad at one another. So your friends have gone behind your back, it seems anyway, with their mom and asked for a special favor from Jesus to be prioritized above everyone else. And Jesus understands this to be kind of ordinary human behavior. Verse 25, he goes on to say, Jesus calls them together, they're all fighting. He calls them together and says, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord that over them. And their high officials, they exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So look for a pattern here. There's the ideal of community, and then there's the reality of community. Discipleship to Jesus happens in the space between those two things. Here's a quote from the founder of a famous Jesus community in Switzerland. He wrote, almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints or heroes or at the least most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, 
that of realization and of true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. I think his three stages of the community experience are incredibly accurate, at least in my experience in church and as a pastor, the idealization, the disenchantment, and then, if there is a third step, commitment. Now, of course, the tragedy is that so many of us never make it beyond stage two. A couple of weeks ago, I happened to get a chance to have a brief conversation with a guy that I really admire whose impact on both myself and, and really, I think, the church ha has been huge. And he told me his experience in church. He said that there's definitely a honeymoon period, and these are his exact words, and it's definitely over. And then he described the entire thing, that experience of both the, the honeymoon and it ending as a gift. Both things were a gift to him and his family. And he would have never known the gift and the gift that it could be if he had bailed when the honeymoon was over. Now, I don't know how this hits you or where you're at in those three stages if you're anywhere, but before we end tonight, I want to make a few things clear about what it means for our church to be a community, to be the alternative society of Jesus and why it matters. Now, first, and hear me on this one, community is non-optional for the disciple of Jesus. Again, Jesus did not call a single disciple. He called disciples, which means not just you and your one best buddy that you trust, and not just you and your spouse, and not just you and that one person that really gets you, but you and other disciples of Jesus. Throughout the biographies of Jesus, we don't hear about or read about just Jesus and Peter, but Jesus and the twelve, or at least Jesus and the three in some isolated scenes. Paul's letters are addressed to churches for whom he presupposes community is the normative mode of life. Even letters addressed to individuals are all about life in community. No one even bothers to write, hey, now be sure that you're sharing your life in community with other disciples of Jesus because the authors of the New Testament presuppose that there is no other option for those who belong to what they called the way. And I don't necessarily mean like a, a church small group model, though historically that is a great way to exemplify community. It's why we use it, not just because that's the thing that churches do, but because we believe in that. But what I mean is, an ongoing, committed, relational dynamic between a group of people in, in which there is genuine vulnerability and accountability, as well as um, the involvement and the willingness to seek and learn the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. And, you know, accuse me of legalism or twitch at the statement, but listen, you cannot follow Jesus alone. You just cannot do it. You cannot separate your discipleship to Jesus from your involvement in the church. To attempt such a thing is like imagining a marriage in which each spouse occupies a separate home. Maybe you have a sheet of paper, but anyone would tell you that's not a marriage. The church is a family 
the primary metaphor throughout the New Testament, brothers and sisters. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you are adopted into God's family. We are disciples, apprentices of the teacher, but we are also brothers and sisters on a shared journey, adopted into one family. So imagine you're adopting a child. You go through this long, arduous, expensive process to provide a home for a kid that would otherwise have no home. And rather than bring this new member of your family into your house to share life and love and relationship, you drop them off somewhere else and say, I did my part. See you around. Good luck. Figure it out on your own. It's not the way adoption works because it's not the way family works. Without relationship, there is no family. And in the same way, we will not maintain a relationship with the father intentionally divorced from the community of his people. And this comes as a difficult pill to swallow, I know, in our hyper-individualistic sort of culture. One recent nationwide survey that I read about this week concluded that 38% of American Christians preferred method of discipleship is, and I quote, on my own. On my own. It just doesn't work that way. So imagine me telling Abby the same thing. Listen, my preferred method of maintaining our husband and wife dynamic is on my own. It doesn't make any sense. There are 59 commands in the New Testament addressed to and intended for, and I quote, one another. How can you even go about accomplishing these things on your own? Ronald Rollheiser puts it like this. Part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that that will bring us. Spiritually, for a Christian, uh, can never be an individualistic quest, the pursuit of God outside of community and family and the church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar, since no one can love a God who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be seen. Hence, a Christian spirituality is always as much about dealing with each other as it is about dealing with God. Or, in the words of Jesus, the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love other people. Community is not optional, but this is actually very good news for you and me, because community is non-optional for healthy living. Again, not a uniquely Christian concept. Regardless of your affinity for Jesus or lack thereof, wherever you're at in your journey with what you think about God and the Bible, all that, human beings we know are relational beings. In their book, The Relational Soul, two leading psychologists discuss the role that relationships play in the human healing process. They say, at the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. We cannot not be relational. We cannot exist well without connection and communion with one another. This is why a uh, fulfilling career, a padded bank account, the ideal home, safety, security, grouped with fractured relationships or isolation will still equal misery in the end. I listened to a, uh, a podcast by my favorite novelist, and he's a dude who's enjoyed a successful career, multiple international bestsellers. His books have been adapted into films. He's had a second career as a, as a screenwriter. He lives a comfortable life in Hollywood. And just this week on his show, he was going on about the ordeal 
of looking, daily looking for small pleasures to justify getting out of bed in the morning. In his words, to justify living. And he said, a cocktail, that's something to live for today. We are meant for something. Disciples of Jesus believe that we are meant for God. And we are meant for one another. We are drawn to, called by Jesus, saved by Jesus, and we follow Jesus with other people. This is why Paul writes that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, meaning all of life, that entire spectrum, celebrate together, grieve together, everything in between together. What is the innate human impulse that occurs immediately following fantastic news. A baby is conceived after months of trying, or you finally land that job after interview, after interview, after interview, or you get accepted to your dream school, or you receive a, a clean bill of health after battling an illness. The impulse is to share that moment with others, to call a loved one or to send that text and to get together and to celebrate. And the way that you feel when you get that news from someone you love, this is a time to rejoice with one another. It's built in. It's hardwired into the fabric of our being. And interestingly, though many of us don't lean by default into community when we suffer, all sorts of reasons for that, many of you know that when you have faced a tragedy with people around you, that you can testify the beauty of community in suffering. But it has to be said, community is not necessarily the same thing as a group of friends. You know, earlier I, I was struck by the way that Jan was describing her experience of community, and she talked about this breakthrough moment in her life where God spoke to her, um, and she said, so I prayed about it with my community. These are people that she's been meeting with every week for seven years now, and she loves them, and they love her. She said as much. So I talked with my community. I talked with my friends. She recognized that there are different types of relationships. A community can be your friends, but not necessarily the same thing the way we usually mean the word. Now, of course, of course, I should be clear, the people with whom you share community can be your friends, that's great. Maybe even really great friends, really close friends. I have really close friends in my community, but... Shared interests and compatible personalities are no more necessary for genuine Christian community than they are for like a karate dojo or, or a boxing gym. You go to the dojo or the gym or whatever to learn and train and share a way of life with other people trying to do the same thing. You could have a lot in common or you could have almost nothing in common except that. You could be in the same season of life, or you could be decades removed from one another. You could all happen to be raising kids, or maybe everyone else is single. It doesn't matter. That's not why you're there, to be perfectly matched. Do you both want to follow Jesus? That's the unifying commonality. A community is a group of people coming together to learn to follow Jesus. They could be close friends, or maybe they just met in basics class. And they've been adopted into the same family that stretches out across the world in hundreds of years. And so it doesn't matter the age or the background or the personality. They resolve to learn the way of Jesus together. And that involves honesty and vulnerability, even if superficially compatible personalities haven't grown those things the fast, easy way. You grow them through the work of community together. But really, where I'm going with all of this for our purposes this evening and for the road ahead, the vision of our church in the days and weeks and months to come, quite frankly, community is how we change. 
This is why we're here this evening. Community plays a crucial role in your spiritual formation, not the only role, but one crucial, non-negotiable role in you becoming more like Jesus over time. Talk to the people who knew me before I was deeply involved in church and who know me after. Now, I, I'm not saying that I've arrived or anything like that. I still have a very long way to go, and I'll tell you a story about it in just a second. But I am, quite frankly, and I think I can say this with integrity, I am not the same person that I was as a result of sharing life and vulnerability and accountability. I'm just not. And the people that I love have told me this. Ordinarily, and this is something Jan touched on too, we become like the people we spend time with in ways big and small, for better or for worse. In the same way that you know, bad company corrupts good morals, it's also true that he who walks with the wise becomes wise. Now, of course, that's the surface level reality of life with other people. When you move a bit deeper, you learn that intentional relationships specifically woven together around the way of Jesus, they accomplish two indispensable things, exposure and encouragement. So think about all the interpersonal conflict that you read about between the apostles in the New Testament across the different churches in the ancient Mediterranean. Think back to the story that we read a few minutes ago, the vying for position, the indignation. You went with your mom and asked Jesus this thing. Had those 12 young men stayed home, there would be no issues to speak of, at least not these kinds, because there would be no other people to conjure them up. Why is it that friends who get along wonderfully and then move in together, suddenly face conflict like never before. Not always, Luke and uh, Joshua, don't worry about it. Not always, <laughs> but you know, it does happen. <laughs> They're like a sitcom. We want to hear your stories in a few weeks. Yeah. The kind of proximity demanded by actual authentic relationship casts, inevitably, it casts this kind of revel revelatory light on what is inside you, what's actually inside you. Pete Scazzaro, who's the author of The Emotionally Healthy Church, describes this as your shadow side. He says, the shadow is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, you might not even know about them, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. Now, the trouble with your shadow side, or what Christian mystics have often called the false self, is that as often as it remains shrouded from people in your life, it escapes your notice as well. You don't even know what's wrong with you until someone else sits beside you and says, why do you behave this way? And community surrounds us in such a way that our shadow side, as it were, is exposed. And this is why many of us don't know a thing about our shadow side until we learn to operate in community. I have known so many people who are only willing to endure intimate relationships until something goes wrong. And then there's a fracture or a falling out or this person hurt me, so I'm done, goodbye, that's it. And then we find ways to kind of lend credibility and give ourselves permission to our unwillingness to forgive or to reconcile or, or to kind of stagnate in immaturity. And please listen to me on this. If you're hearing all this, if you're hearing all this, me, you know, kind of talking about the shadow side and brokenness of community and what people do, and you're thinking of someone else. Someone else really needs to hear this. Someone, 
Someone else really revealed their shadow. Man, their shadow side is a doozy. And someone else is the broken person in my community. Stop for a moment. I'm serious. Stop for a moment. Please listen. And turn that scrutiny inward on yourself. Not to beat up on yourself, but as, a, as an exercise in self-awareness. And think of your shadow side, your brokenness, your sin. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, teaching as a guest at another church, and I was talking about this kind of stuff, the joy and the brokenness of community, really tough conversation stuff, which is real easy to do when you don't work there. You can say whatever, and then you're bye, you know. But between the multiple gatherings, I saw a pastor friend of mine and I, from afar, and I went to say hello uh, before I realized he was wrapped up in what looked like an intense conversation. So I was like, ooh, geez, I'll wait. And when it was finally over, I stepped in. He looked kind of exhausted. I was like, oh, is everything okay? Am I interrupting? And he, he told me that the person to whom he was talking was deeply impacted by this teaching that I'd given, and they were stirred to action. I was flattered. Oh, that's so nice. But then he said, their takeaway was someone else in their community needs to hear this. <laughs> Some other person is that awful person I was talking about. That Some other person is the one who needs to do that work I was talking about. And he, hearing this, was like, interesting. <laughs> On Friday night, just a couple days ago, I was uh, frustrated with my wife, Abby. This happens sometimes when you're married. And uh, I was really reading her the riot act. I don't mind telling you. I was like uh, talking about all the ways that I thought she had done me wrong. And I was really worked up about it. And I start, I, when I started talking, I felt so justified in my righteous indignation. Uh, I was right, dang it. And, and, and the more that I talked the more that it was a bizarre experience of feeling my own words becoming poisonous in my mouth and in the air around us. And in the middle of the rant, this is, not a, this is a true story, in the middle of the rant, the conviction from the Holy Spirit suddenly became so overwhelming that I stopped mid-sentence and I dropped my head and said, what am I doing? Out loud, I said, what am I doing? This is not who I want to be. I am not treating you right. I shouldn't talk to you this way. I'm the one who's wrong. Can you please forgive me? So she was suddenly like, well, okay. So I was getting blindsided by all this fussing, and now all of a sudden I have to, you know, accept your apology. <laughs> that's what it's like in community. There are other people to draw the shadow out. The shadow is illuminated, exposed, and thus can be, if we allow it, called into the light. But a healthy community doesn't begin and end with just exposing all the bad stuff about you. It is the home of encouragement. It is an instrumental resource in our healing. When I said earlier that, you know, people who knew me before I was involved in church and know me now um, that say like, oh, wow, this has been a big change in your life, um, they would admit that it has not been easily won and that it has taken a tremendous amount of accountability and conviction and that it is the place where you don't just say, wow, you used to suck and now you're a lot better. It's the place where gradually over time, Someone can tell you, like, I see that you're doing the work. Thank God for the work that you're doing and the work that I'm doing and that we can do it together. On both a psychological and neurological level, the only way to heal relational wounds is, I'm sorry, with relationships. Community acts as a hub for healing and as the place in which we, quote, spur one another on to love and good deeds in the language of the scriptures. If you would like to grow into maturity and mastery as an apprentice of Jesus, there is no route that does not include the shared life 
of community. Community is not easy. In fact, it can be downright arduous or painful or difficult. Most of you already know this really well, but it is in community that we are formed and shaped to become like Jesus himself. So, community is the byproduct of commitment. We are a modern people tragically caught in a recursive loop. We want to belong, but we'd like to stay mobile. Uh, the devolving of the family has made us lonely and afraid, and, and we ache for community, and yet we'd also like to keep our options open. So we approach church as yet another product for consumption. What's in it for me? If the product is adequate, I'll consider accepting it. If it's inadequate, it will be returned. And these people, they don't meet my needs. They're not quite like me. They don't understand me. I don't feel connected. I think that they've kind of dropped the ball on serving me, and so I'm out. And yet, Jesus' approach to community is with a focus dedicated outside of himself, on others. In his language, I did not come to be served, but to serve. If Jesus had in mind to surround himself by like-minded, ever-affirming, and obedient best buddies, he did an awful job of recruiting his community. Community presupposes commitment. And for many, commitment is simply too high a price to pay. If you want community, the family of God, actual community, where you can steward something like safety and openness and accountability and, and, and beauty, and yes, of course, messy, brokenness, all that, but long-term relationships, the exposure, the encouragement, commitment is the prerequisite to the shared life in which discipleship to Jesus is actually carried out? What if our approach to our communities and to our church was how can I serve other people rather than how can my church meet my needs? Our culture loves to tell bad stories about church. You don't have to go far to find them because church has people, people are broken, so bad stuff happens in church as is the case wherever there are people. And bad stories about church provide the darkened soul with a superficial kind of satisfaction, however fleeting, and they gather up resentment. Misery loves company. But the truth is, those of us who have been living in the broken messiness of community long enough and walking with Jesus long enough to allow him to open our hearts and minds to forgiveness and to a wider perspective, we have seen the beauty of self-sacrificial love in ways big and small amongst broken, imperfect people. People who barely know us and brought us food when we had babies or, or when we were sick or when we were grieving. People who helped us move from one house to another. People who gave money when we were in need. People who held our newborn children. People who watch our kids downstairs and try to help them learn about how to follow Jesus. People who babysit or people who pray over us and prophesy over us whether they know us well or don't know us at all. The church often talks about the example of a life well lived in the individualistic sense, meaning this is how you, just you and Jesus, learn to follow Jesus or learn to grow together in your relationship and maturity. But the example set by a community is every bit as powerful, I would argue more so. In fact, the example of an individual who lives faithfully in community puts on display the life of Jesus all the more powerfully. Community is the thing into which we are inviting the entire world. 
The invitation to become disciples is an invitation into the family of God, not just a system of belief. It's an invitation into community, evangelism, life as disciples, things like justice and mission. All of these things are carried out within the context of community. When the world looks to see the church, they should see not an individual, but the community of God's people. Remember these words of Jesus, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Who's Jesus talking to when he issues this command? His community, the 12. And then in his delegated authority in the scriptures to us, the continuation of the community of the church, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Community, the kind of community I'm talking about anyway, takes time. Ask Jan. She's been in one for seven years with the same people. Levi's in there. Shoo, tough. <laughs> Ordinarily, it takes a long time to be formed into community, to even begin to uncover the possibilities of relationship and vulnerability and intimacy, everyone has to pony up. And I don't mean to say like, oh, geez, you better get in one for seven years and then you'll start to experience the goodness of what God's describing. No, absolutely not. It can be beautiful from the outset. Often it is. It has been in my story as well. But the true formation of community takes place, like all spiritual formation, slowly and over time. There is no, I will give when I get. And there is no, they need to prove that they deserve my time and my commitment, and then I'll see about it. Time and commitment are the admission fee, and they are the recurring payment. You give them both from the outset, and you give them both in perpetuity. Without paying both, no fair assessment of community can be made. All you can say is, I never really gave it a shot. Some of us imagine that attentionality is... Um, tantamount to forcing community. You guys get together the same time every week, and you have these rhythms and this curriculum that you do the practice and everything. It's kind of a forced community, but I would argue that's not a bad thing. In the hyper-individualistic, radically disconnected, overstimulated, and altogether distracted world in which we live, the illusion of like organic community that just magically materializes around us is kind of absurd. Ask anyone who's trying to stay friends with someone long-term. It takes work especially when your lives begin to splinter in different directions and your season of life changes, we will have to fight for relationships. In her book, The New Better Off, Courtney Martin writes this, if you want to live like this with other people, you need not move somewhere special. You need only be intentional about asking them to embrace interdependence with you. And then, listen, ritualize that commitment. Sound familiar? We often fantasize about the village growing up around us spontaneously, as if frequent reciprocity will magically appear in the cracks of our scheduled, overscheduled lives. But when we move so fast, we don't see one another well enough to know where the needs are and when we struggle to ask for help. Rather than wishing for intentional community, we have to doggedly pursue it, make it concrete, Make it a shared Google calendar. Just make it real. Even if you're honest, earnest and vulnerable, creating communities like these, creating community at all, requires shared space and time. It requires a genuine commitment to slowing down. 
I don't have to tell you guys that you will be hurt in community. If you've tried it at all, you know that one already. Yes, we will be hurt together. But those of you who continue to walk in community beyond hurt, through hurt, know well enough that we are also being healed together. When people share life and burdens and resources and trials and celebration and love and empathy and honesty and vulnerability and, I would argue, maybe above all those things or certainly uh, equivalent to all those things, accountability. When a group of people deliberately chooses to share these things faithfully with one another in a ritualized, committed way, they are becoming what Jesus called a light on a hill, the kind of thing through which Everyone will know that you are his disciples because you live with one another in love, you commit to one another in love, and you love one another well, even though we do not deserve it. We do not deserve one another, but we choose to love one another anyway. That becomes a beacon calling out to a lonely, isolated, grieving, messy world. See how the family of God loves and you can come join us as well. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to guide us into intimacy and community and the family into which he's called us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.